From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. Well, hello, everyone. You are listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. I am joined by pastors Mel Massingale and Todd Stanley. Hi there. Hey, hey. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. And uh, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, maybe something that would be useful for someone who's in a teaching pastor role. Or maybe, you know, if you're just a lead pastor of a church and teaching is part of your role in addition to worship and the other things that you do. I want to know what are some steps or presuppositions that a teaching pastor can make to protect himself against bad doctrine and heresies. The first one that comes into my mind is, I actually think that this is a step and, and a presupposition, sola scriptura. That's, that's the big one for me, but, uh, and we can talk about that, why that might be the case. What are some other steps and presuppositions that a person might take before they start teaching? that would protect them against bad doctrine and against heresy. Well, I think that helps, but I would push back a little and say even people that I would say are heretical would say, hey, I preach the word. I preach the word alone. And it's like, well, yeah, but you know what I mean? So even that, there's room for... So are they paying lip service to the word or are they... Mm. Do they actually believe that they... I think they actually believe. Like, I mean, I'm not going to name a name, but Todd and I were talking (laughs) recently about... uh, a, a specific heretic, uh, that somebody that I would deem as a heretical preacher, and I have no doubt in my mind that this particular preacher would say, I am preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. I am preaching the full gospel. Um, I'm not right. picking and choosing, but but um, his application is bad. His, <laughs> his <laughs> exegesis is bad. His, yeah. you know... So, so I think even people, I think we can deceive ourselves into thinking I'm preaching the whole gospel. I'm preaching the whole word of God. I'm not cherry picking and, and think that we are scripture only, but we are not. So does that mean that it's possible to have the desire to teach the word of God accurately, but not have the tools and therefore end up in bad doctrine or in a heretical worldview? I mean, I think so. I, the, the thing that comes to mind for me uh, immediately is Paul's charge to Timothy, right? So he writes to Timothy, who's a young preacher, and he says, Study to show yourself approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. And so, you know, Paul seems to indicate to Timothy that, you know, there's some, there's some work that needs to be done so that we can do this the right way. Right, so that we rightly divide, so that we rightly understand God's word, and we can we can then you know exegete well. We can then teach sound doctrine, and mm-hmm. you know, and then there are all kinds of warnings in the scripture about there'll be a time when people will abandon sound doctrine, and there'll be you know, and so absolutely, uh, there are there are some things that we have to do uh, as as teachers, as communicators of God's word. Uh, to make sure that we are doing it well and that we are doing it right. I think that's one of the reasons that Scripture indicates that, you know, not many of you should teach because you'll be judged more harshly. Yeah. Well, and um, I mean, I shared this verse with with a a group of leaders at an ARC gathering a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. Um, But in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy at the end, verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Um, like these are the two things that he tells Timothy, who's, you know, pastoring a church. You got to watch these things, both how you live and what you are teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation, the salvation of those who hear. He said, so your salvation depends on it, but the salvation of the of the congregation, the people you're leading is dependent on this as well. And I think we take for granted that our doctrine is true because we're in the right denomination or we're in the right church or we're in the right whatever. So I think it's easy to start with this assumption that, well, I must be right because I'm a preacher. And, and so, you know, when you were talking earlier about how do we guard ourselves against that, I think we do what Paul is saying. We keep a close watch on how we're living and also on what we're teaching. And 
we are open enough with the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to challenge us to go, whoa, 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 wait one second. Like, is, is mm-hmm. this really true or are you editorializing yeah. the Bible? Um, and that's one of the things we've got to be careful about. It's important for us to ex- um, explain scripture in a way that people can understand it, contextualize it, you know, but it's, it's, we got to be really careful about, about taking it to places that, um, the original right. spirit of the, of the word never intended for it to go. And it's easy for it to do. I mean, honestly, you know, what I was referencing earlier, yeah, well, I mean, I'm just going to say like the word of faith movement that, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. That's, I, th- I really do believe that's what happened. Um, does God want us to be blessed? Yes. But is it material blessing? Yeah. yeah. You know, right. and, uh, and that's where they've taken it. And so I think at some point they stopped um, keeping a close watch on what they were teaching and they um, just adjust it. And I think any of us can do that with lots and lots and lots of different things. Uh, so I, I have to start with the assumption that I might be wrong about this. And I have to be open to pushback from the Holy Spirit and from other people as well yeah. to go, hey, are you sure that really means what you think it means? Um, one time I was a young minister and I prayed publicly at the end of the service and I used the word, um, I described God, God, I thank you that you're an ambivalent God. <laughs> and I was like, didn't even think anything of it, but I was wrong. And if you're listening to this and you don't know what ambivalent means, just Google it. But <laughs> I was thinking benevolent, right? Mm-hmm. But I was wrong. And I wrongly ass- assigned God an attribute that he did not deserve. And thankfully, yeah. I had somebody in my church call me out. They were like, did you... You said God is ambivalent. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, I'm thankful that he is such an ambivalent God. And he was like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's important for us to be humble enough to be able to receive some of that. Um, and, um, and that's really hard to do because we're a lot of times teaching pastors or lead pastors are in a position where we don't receive criticism very easily. Yeah. Uh, you know, just thinking back to um, my, my days as a, a student, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things that, one of the first things they talk about when you talk about uh, biblical interpretation, right, or hermeneutics, right, is, you know, what did it mean for the original audience? Mm-hmm. And I think if we start there, then then we're always on a lot safer ground. Yeah. Where we really get in trouble is when we start just kind of cherry picking things and, uh, I'll give you a, a good example, right? Uh, in Proverbs, and people quote this all the time, right? Train up a child in the way they should go, yeah. and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Now, that's a proverb, right? Which yeah. means it's a truism. It's uh, all things considered, right? <laughs> Chances are this is how this works, right? Yeah. It's a principle, uh, right? Right, but it's yeah. not a promise. Right. It's a proverb. But people quote it as if it's a promise mm. because they don't understand uh the the literary features of proverbs they don't understand yeah. what you know uh the genre a- mm-hmm. and so then they quote it as if it's a, a a promise now that that becomes problematic if you have a child who grows up and rebels and mm-hmm. turns away from the faith and does all you know and you go but but god you promised well no that's that's not the case and so uh you know there's there are those kinds of things understanding the the genre of the book that you're reading, understanding mm-hmm. its function for the original audience, understanding you know the historical context and all of that that puts us on a lot safer ground. So that's a practice. Like if you have a good study Bible, often right they will have a summary at the beginning and it will talk about the historical context, like yeah. who the book was written to, what was going on at the time, uh, the literary features of the book, all of that kind of stuff. All of that is super helpful for us when we start to try to understand Scripture. And then also read the entire book within its context. Uh, don't just pick out one verse and go, okay, I'm going to build a whole doctrine yeah. off of this one thing like read the book in context not only in its in the context for itself but then its larger context within the story of scripture right all of these things um are they're just good practices you know um responsible practices with handling the word of god well i, th- I think anytime we preach um 
and, and you know we've talked before about line by line versus topical and so even you know when we're preaching a topical message well even when we're doing line by line if you're supporting if you're supporting the text with another text it's easy to take one line yeah and say i'm supporting this or i'm supporting this idea with this scripture but i've gotten um how over the years i've gotten into the habit of if i'm supporting a text with another text i still want to contextualize that text yeah to be able to say okay paul is saying this here but here's what he says in this and here's how he was saying it to them right but here's how it it connects um but but do we? I think part of the question comes back to: Do we really believe all of Scripture is valuable? And if we do, then there it makes it harder for us to cherry pick it. And yeah. um, and we we finished a, a series in the Book of Romans a couple weeks ago, and one of the hardest passages I've ever had to preach was Romans sixteen because <laughs> it's all the like shout outs and farewells and. Um, I don't think it was my best message ever, but I worked really, really, really hard to give context to yeah. the people that were being mentioned so that our people could understand, oh, here's why this person is significant, and here's the significance of this person, and here's the role that they played in the church, and here's why they were important to Paul. Um, and I had feedback from that. And we had people saved that weekend that were like, you know, and <laughs> they were literally in Romans 16, there's only like three verses of meat yeah. right i mean like that i would say are like oh this is preachable I preach this yeah yeah and um but but again it comes back to this idea that if we do our jobs correctly and help people understand the word of god um and not just not just um and not just my my splashy editorial on the word right. of god but really help them understand context and help them understand what was Paul trying to say? What was God speaking, you know, through this writer? You know, um, we make our job harder than it has to be sometimes if we'll just preach the word and let the word do some of the work for us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I loved that message. And the reason I loved it is because it put on display for everyone the fact that even the passages of scripture that you might want be tempted to skip over mm-hmm. It's like there's there's stuff there. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's reasons why you shouldn't. And yeah, the that, begats. Yeah, right. That, right. <laughs> and it, so yeah. uh, that's interesting. Now, this calls to the fore, I think, several consequential pieces. Um, the first of which is it does seem to be the case that there can be external um, limitations, like limitations on vocabulary, like you had uh-huh. mentioned about. If you, if, if you misunderstand a particular word, you could ascribe that word to God and therefore warp and shift the character of God. So there's incentive then to um, have a, a good purchase on the words that you're going to use in your teaching. And it doesn't have to mean that you have to have a vast vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It's just that once you want, when you're in the teaching moment that you have the good purchase. Um, the second thing is uh, what you said about, uh, you know, watching how you live in addition to how you teach. Mm -hmm. So I think of this like praxis. And what I mean by praxis is if I take an understanding of scripture and I deploy it in life, if it results in fruit, then that's a good sign that my understanding is true or is accurate. And like, this is a Todd. I think that your piece on Proverbs bears a relation to this as well, because explaining that verse for what it is just changes the way that people deal with tragedy Mm -hmm. completely. It just, it completely changes the way they view God, all of this. So understanding it like more like a, a saying of, you know, if if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Like that's a saying a lot of people have heard. Well, there's lots of people who've played with fire and never been burned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But generally it's not a good idea to play with fire because of the probability that you'll be burned. Right. So that's where that kind of thing comes from. Okay. So, when I think of uh, people who appear very scholarly in their ability to dissect and teach scripture, but who just will not look at their fruit, and I'm going to use their name because these people are a tractor beam for bad press, and you've probably heard it before, the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, most of them are lawyers, and yeah. you know, and they're all they do is read the Bible. Like they do as far that's the documentaries that have been done on them suggest that that's what they're doing a lot of the time. And yet they're not displaying the fruit of the spirit. 
in the way that they conduct themselves. And they're just the easy example. There are other pastors like this. Steven Anderson is one. Um, And again, I'm not using any names that aren't already very well publicized. Like these people are putting themselves out there for this. Um, So I don't know where that necessarily goes, except for the, just the, the point to reinforce the point that if you have an understanding of the text and you try to live it out, if it results in destruction and despair around Mm -hmm. you, then it's probable that your understanding is wrong. And what's crazy about that is you can import problems that will destroy your understanding before you even get to the text, like the Proverbs issue, Mm -hmm. like just not understanding what literary form Mm -hmm. it's in can change the way that you read it. And so, so then I guess there are these things on the outside that we have to pay attention to in order to, make sure that what we're reading, what we're understanding is what is actually meant to be understood. And so maybe one of these things could be the temptation or the pressure to uh, not appear as a hypocrite. And so the, the first piece of this, I wanna ask, do you agree that when we teach the full counsel of God, uh, what we're doing is we're presenting the character of Jesus Christ for the people who we're teaching to? Um, if this is the case, if that's what we're doing, Um, How can a pastor do such a thing accurately um, without being appearing like a hypocrite? So this this kind of falls into the idea of sanctification and and the other, I would say, presupposition, maybe theological principle, that no one here on earth is entirely sanctified. Mm -hmm. The entire sanctification is something that is not available until you die and are glorified in the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm sure, I don't know if all traditions believe that, but I think that that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, we, we would we would agree with that. I would say there's probably some of our listeners that um, we would split some hairs on this and they believe right. in uh, instant sanctification, but, but that's a whole other podcast for another day. So this seems... <laughs> This seems like an obvious problem to avoid, but I don't. I think a lot of pastors don't avoid this. The problem is, if I know what areas of my life have not been sanctified, mm-hmm. are not in congruence with the character of Jesus and yep. with what with what the Word of God says, I feel immense pressure to twist and warp what the Word of God says in order to maintain my integrity as a thought leader or as a mm-hmm. teacher. Like, I don't want to appear as a hypocrite. And it seems like over and over again, entire denominations would prefer to change what the scripture says rather than allow the sunlight to hit their the pieces of themselves that are not yet sanctified. So what do we do with that? Like, how does a teaching pastor faithfully teach the word of God, knowing that he's going to hit a part where, because I've heard, I've heard different advice on this. I've heard, mm-hmm. I've heard pastors say, just don't teach on this thing. Just don't teach on it yet. <laughs> just, just avoid it. Don't teach on it. And only teach the stuff terrible. you're good at. You only teach the stuff you're good at. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah. So, so that's the thing is like, I don't know. Look, I think the only way to avoid not not only not appearing to be a hypocrite, but to avoid being a hypocrite is to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, to extol the glory of Jesus, to lift high the glory of Jesus, regardless of whether I have a particular area, quote-unquote, nailed down or not. and, And here's the thing with that. If I think I have an area nailed down, I'm probably... I'm probably struggling with pride in that area to be, you know, and so the only way we can not be hypocrites is to be honest about where we're at, that we struggle yeah. as well, that we wrestle as well. I, I think one of the worst things that we can do as ministers of the gospel is to set ourselves up as some sort of paragon of virtue. Mm-hmm. Now that's not the same thing as, you know, we should live as examples. The, the the clear indication of Scripture, the clear command of Scripture for us is that we should live lives that are above reproach. But living above reproach does not mean perfection. perfection. Yeah. Living above reproach means being honest about, man, I struggle with this too. Man, this yeah. is, you know... 
living above reproach, it involves daily um, repentance and confession, right? Yeah. um, So I think people look at pastors and people on a platform and think, well, they're perfect. Their lives are perfect. Their marriages are perfect. And, and, um, And sometimes we can buy into that. We can start to think like, oh, yeah, I've got to live up to this. But but you're exactly right. I think the more honest we can be, and that doesn't mean we air all of our dirty laundry. And you know, every time we have a fight with our wife, we say it from stage, or you know, like that's not what I'm saying at all. But staying humble enough to understand, like, hey, I'm a pastor, and I still need to confess my sinfulness to God today. Like, yeah. oh man, I God, I messed up. Man, God, I was dealing with this wrong. I, you know, whatever it is, um, and that is a good way for us to stay humble is by continually confessing and repenting before the Lord and going, okay, I still need your grace today. Um, I'm, I'm still not a perfect husband yeah. or dad or pastor or boss or any of those things. Um, and humility is um, a, a great way. Um, it's a great antidote to that, you know, and, and sometimes if we can't give it to ourselves, um, you know, our family is a good way to keep us humble. A lot yeah. of times, our our kids are. You know, I said our girls. I was going to say our girls, right. but you got girls too. Yep. But yeah, you know, like, but it's. I think it's really, really, really important for us to be honest. And and I, I don't know. I mean, you've been around a long time. I mean, I try to help people understand. Like, I am deeply flawed, and uh, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't have a pipeline to God. So I want to. I want to set appropriate expectations for them. So that when I do mess up, their world is not shattered. Uh, yeah. That, that people don't think, oh, Mel is perfect. Oh, all the staff is perfect. And then when they they get a glimpse behind the curtains and go, oh, my gosh, they are not perfect. They don't just yeah. leave our church and leave faith. And, you know. I think trying to avoid looking like a hypocrite is a really good way <laughs> to actually be one. Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's... Well, it's interesting because on the individual level, it seems like most of us have an allergy to hypocrisy. And I don't know that that allergy is a bad thing uh, in the sense that there are there are forms of hypocrisy that are very dangerous, like a camouflaged predator, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And but there has to be some entry point for grace and humility that changes what might be perceived as hypocrisy into what it actually is, which is someone who's being humble and teaching faithfully the word of God, even though they have issues with the particular, with living out the particular thing. Yeah. We have to be able to see that that is not hypocrisy, even though it, it, it like a, like we were talking at the beginning, it kind of appears like it. But so much of that is at the level of, of the congregation. And I think uh-huh. this is what you're saying, Mel, about setting the right expectations is like, that pressure from the congregation up can become immense if the wrong expectations are set from the beginning or if they're not continually reminded of the right expectations. And so I think all that's, uh, yeah, all that's really good. But I feel like that's a picture, like done appropriately, that's a picture of grace, right? Like that's a great teaching moment to be able to say, hey, like I'm not just dispensing grace to you. You know, I'm not, I'm not just, um, a purveyor of grace to my congregation, but I am a, a recipient as well. I am a participant in grace as well. And and I feel like that is a, a really beautiful thing to be able to display to your people. Um, and, and I think it's better today than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, probably, yeah, yeah. where, you know, pastors felt like every time I got I have to go in public, I have to wear a suit and tie because, you know, um, I've got to maintain a certain image. If I have marital problems, nobody will ever know, you know, like my kids are going to be perfect all the time. And then it produces these kids that hate God and hate the church and hate their family, you know, mm-hmm. all those kind of things. I feel like I feel like uh, pastors have come a long way. And even our culture, I think, um, even though we kind of pushed back probably on hypocrisy 20 years ago, um, we still deeply valued the perfect, um, flawless pastor yeah. and leader. Um, but, but even in the secular world, I think they would say today, hey, uh, transparency, authenticity is a valuable asset for leaders to have. And I think it's, it's true in the church as well. Yeah, and I think too that like – Hypocrisy is not uh, struggling against the flesh. Mm-hmm. It, you know, 
like hypocrisy is not struggling against the flesh, right? Hypocrisy is presenting myself as something yeah. while being content to, to not be that thing. It's just discon- it's an incongruency in who you present yourself to be and who you truly are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it'd be one thing if I struggled but lied about it. Right, and it's another thing if I struggle and 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 make myself accountable yeah. to leadership and uh, am willing, maybe not to air all of my dirty laundry from the platform, right. but to talk honestly about yeah. you know I wrestle with the same things and you know and we have to avoid the temptation to. To make ourselves appear as the hero, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. that's really what it is. It, you know, it it's got to be about Jesus. Yeah, and when it when it starts to be about me and what people perceive me to be, and 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 not that people's opinions of us, you know, not that that's not important, but if that's the thing that <laughs> if it if it's image management and that kind of thing, if that's the thing that I'm worried about, then I've I've already lost the plot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that's at the heart of it. That's the, that's the heart of the difference between like the Pharisee type mm-hmm. and the humble, faithful Bible teacher is that is the way that they're presenting themselves. Yeah. So they could both be presenting the text accurately, but the way that you present yourself actually matters and may eventually end up warping and shifting the way you present the text. Yeah. Because. Well, we've talked about this in the past, I know, but, um, you know, when we're preaching, um, even talking about vulnerability and imperfection, I mean, even how we tell stories um, and illustrations, you know, um, I'll use illustrations about our, my own life at times, but I, I want to be careful about using illustrations that make me look good. Yeah. Right? Because people admire your strength, but they relate to your weakness. Um, I, I served under a pastor one time that he he would talk often about... Um, how good a baseball player he was in high school and he was all city and you know all this stuff and championship team and I had a person in our church it was a very very large church came to me later and said hey my wife went to high school with him he didn't play baseball in high school I was like what and he literally you talk about having the receipts he pulled out the the uh the yearbook and was like you know nope nope he's not anywhere in here um, well, and he was talking about junior high. He was talking about when he was like a seventh grader. He okay. was, but again, he never, ever, ever says <laughs> this in the story. Yeah. Why? Because I, I think he was probably trying to make himself look better than he actually was. But again, who's the hero of the story? And you alluded to this, right? Is, is Jesus the hero or am I the hero? And even when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what do I include in my message or not? I, one of the filters I use is, does this make me look better? Or does this make God look better? Because if it's just about showing people how smart I am or how knowledgeable I am, that's probably not a good reason to include it in the yeah. message. But if it propels the message forward and connects it to people's hearts better and helps people understand God more intimately and better than yes, I should include this in. So that's a good way for me to go. You know what? I don't need to talk about the Greek on this word here because I like it and I think it's good, but it really just makes me look smart because right and so again i think that's a good filter for us yeah. to go, well who's this making look better is it me am i the hero of this story or does it make you know is jesus the hero of the story why why does that happen so what, I, what i'm asking is that motivation to do that and even in social interactions to kind of just elevate your status in some way like to try mm-hmm. to make yourself appear wise or good or strong or whatever it is like we all know most people know that that that's just when you see it in someone else it's just repugnant like it's mm-hmm. just you, you just see it and you're like oh i don't i don't want anything to do with that guy and yet i would say that that's so consistent that it's it's like a temptation it's, it's, it's really what it is like we know that it's not good and then it doesn't come off well yeah. and yet especially when we're in the company of people who are further along than us. Mm-hmm. I think that there's really like a pressure of, oh, I got to prove myself or I have to do this or that. Do we have any sense of where that comes from? Is it just simple insecurity that, that motivates it? It probably is oversimplified, but yes. I think yeah. it's our sense of identity, who I am, who I am not. Um, 
the um, oh, uh, John Ortberg wrote a book that I love. It's it's I don't know probably fifteen years old now. Uh, called the me I the me I want to be, and he just talked about you know our identity and what that looks like and why we will tell stories about you know the famous people we've rubbed elbows with and why do we feel the need to impress people but yeah at the end of the day i really do feel like it's it's my lack that makes me go hey i'm i'm enough i promise i know this person or i've been in this yeah. situation or i'm smart enough to do this so i need to tell you about it i'm enough and uh, yeah pastors are not immune to that yeah and i think too that you know we we want to deepen our influence in people's lives and we think well if i present myself as having it all together Mm -hmm. then people are going to listen to what i have to say and uh the danger with that though is then that they begin to build and we've seen this right they begin to build their faith on a leader rather than on christ and if i simply live with integrity before the people that I lead, then the influence will take care of itself, right? Um, you know, I have a, there's a, a songwriter, his name is Tony Wood, who was talking about, he was talking about it in the context of songwriting, but I think it, it bears, you know, out in every arena of ministry. He said, if you'll concern yourself with the depth of your ministry, then, then God will concern himself with the breadth of it, right? But I think oftentimes we try to increase the breadth of our ministry. How, how great can my reach be rather than working and, and you know, uh, on the depth of my relationship with God, the depth of my understanding of the Word of God, the depth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Carrie Newhoff, you know, talks about, you know, work twice as hard on your character as you do your competency, you know, and it's kind of that same kind of idea. Uh, but we, we can often concern ourselves with, with how far my reach can go rather than how deep thing, you know. And I think part of that is um, longevity. And, you know, I've been at Summit almost nine years. Um, and uh, And I heard, I mean, I heard uh, David Ashcraft, who pastors, or he just recently retired from LCBC. And for those of you that are listening, if you don't, if you're not familiar with LCBC, you should familiar familiarize yourself with this church. But uh, LCBC is a very large church. Probably it's one of I don't know five or six or seven large churches in America over in um, over in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. But um, David Ashcraft um, at a at a gathering um, I don't know a couple months ago. Somebody asked him uh, in a forum uh, about what he's learned, or and one of the things he said basically was, "I overestimated how much I could do in the short term, and I underestimated how, how much I could do in the long term." Yeah. Hmm. And I think that's a mistake a lot of us make. And even with our preaching, I think the more people know us and know our hearts, the more they're going to receive our preaching, and the more grace they're going to give us in our preaching. Um, and and that comes back to that character they see over time that it's not perfect, but they know our hearts. They know we're moving in the right direction. It just allows them to extend a lot of grace. And, um, when we say things, um, the way we've lived our lives support that. And again, again, not perfection, but just saying, Hey, I've seen consistency in this person over the years. And so it gives, it lends greater credibility to the things I'm saying. Now it's not just the word of God says, but it's like, Oh, your life is displaying this as well. Um, and, and I think that's something that's important for us to, to live out that, man, I'm, I'm getting to do things and be things to my people nine years in that I couldn't in year one and two. Um, and I expect 10 years from now that, that it's going to flourish even more that I'll have greater opportunities because now I'll be leading people who were born in our church when I was, you know, here, like I'm the only pastor they've ever known. Uh, so there's going to be a greater level of credibility I'm going to have for them to be able to speak into their lives and preach the word. And, um, and so I think longevity is part of that because, It does helps people see our hearts. Yeah, that's really interesting. That idea of because if you overestimate what you can do in the short term, that becomes a source of pressure to display prowess for the sake of prowess. Like Mm -hmm. if you put undue urgency on your project on what you're trying to do, and then you see that the effect isn't happening as quickly as you wanted it to, then then you become sort of insecure. And then it's like, okay, well, I need to 
lift myself up higher. I need to do better. Um, but yeah, sometimes time is the, is the major ingredient for all of that. Well, and I know this is <clears throat> kind of off topic for what we've been talking about. I loved what he said because somebody asked him about that, then followed up and just said, well, how, you know, how have you done that? Because I think he pastored at LCBC for 30 or 31 years. And um, and Bob Merritt was with him. Bob pastored Eagle Heights in Minneapolis, which is another gigantic, I don't know, probably fourth or fifth biggest church in America that you've maybe never heard of. But Bob was with him. They were talking together. And one of the things David said is he said, I just never looked. He said, my yeah. friends and the pastors that have served on our staff, if they start looking for a job, they will find it because you, you'll you'll find what you're looking for, right? And he said, but I never looked for a job. And he said, I had people approach me over the years and say, hey, but he said, I just knew I'm going to stay here until God tells me I'm supposed to leave. And then if God tells me to leave, then I'll go look. But I'm not just going to go browse. I'm not just going to go. And I just thought, man, what a practical tip to yeah. stay faithful where you're at is just to say, okay, God, I'm going to stay until you tell me to leave. And then when you tell me to leave, I'll go look. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to be tempted. I mean, because it's true. Even think about people that have been unfaithful in their marriage. Like, that's what happened, right? They went looking. They went looking and they found something. And so, again, for me, if I value longevity, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to be curious. Well, I'll just see what's out there. Like, nope, I'm going to be faithful to what God's called me to until yeah. he tells me to do something else. So, yeah. And the interesting part about that, too, is that the, the, the major reward, because you, you might think, well, if I don't look, how am I going to find the rewards? How am I going to find yeah, what, yeah. what I want? Well, how am I going to advance? How am I going to get to where I want to mm -hmm. go? If I'm not, if I'm not active, if I'm not an active participant in my own advancement, how am I right. going to do that? But what's interesting about that, and particularly in context of marriage and in, in what you're saying about staying faithful at your job, um, the, the reward that you gain access to by doing that cannot be had unless you do that mm -hmm. yeah. like you just you, you can't experience the kind of union in a marriage that you have when that person is the only person on earth or you mm -hmm. you can't experience that in any other way other than to practice that yeah. actual yeah. worldview and yeah. so that's that's something to think about too because the incentive appears to be to not do that mm -hmm. but there is a there's a gold coin let's say there's a there's a there's a special reward for the people that, that do that, that you just can't arrive at in any other way. It doesn't matter how well you perform at the alternative course. Mm -hmm. You can't get there unless you submit to that particular understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's dangerous because we still live with this, this idea that big church is what we're, that's the, um, that's the, the goal, right? Like, our goal as ministers is to pastor the biggest church we possibly can. So I'm just going to advance, advance, advance until, right. right? Or if I'm unhappy or if I'm uncomfortable or if, um, you know, I'm in year two and the church hasn't doubled or tripled in size yet because those are the books we read, right? <laughs> like yeah. Those are the yeah. blogs we read. And so I must be doing something wrong. There's something wrong with these people. I, I need to change. And it's like, well, no, maybe God is just asking you to be faithful, and to stay long term and to bury your problems, literally all the people that are causing you problems, <laughs> you're going to bury them someday. And that sounds horrible, but, but that's the truth. And, and I served under a pastor one time that he was just getting grief and from, from some people in the church. And I said, man, how do you live with that? And he said, I just know I'm going to bury them someday. I'm going to outlast them. They think they're going to outlast me, but they're not. I'm going to outlast them. I'm going to bury. I'm going to do their funerals someday. And it was like, <laughs> sounds kind of grim, but like that's how he comforted himself. Like I'm going to outlast them. I'm just going to be faithful. So yeah. that's good. So this this is probably one we can finish on. Um, when it comes to biblical precepts, like so, we're talking a lot about teaching. Oh yeah, we were talking about preaching. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So when, when it comes to Bible principles or precepts found in scripture, um, what would you say is the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law? And does this difference uh, cause us to change the manner in which we observe the scripture? And if all of that is true, then how do we get to the heart of the law in our own studies, in our, in our own teaching? So let's talk first about the, the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Is there a difference? What is that difference? You want to you dive in? I think the easy one is, um, I mean, we, we referenced this earlier, right? Like Pharisees. Pharisees observed the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. Jesus said, hey, you tithe off your mint, right? 
Um, but you've missed the greater things. Now, both of these are important. He didn't say not tithe, but he said you should tithe and you should love, you yeah. know? And so I think, I think it's easy to live according to the letter of the law in some ways. And, you know, uh, every, um, dot every I and cross every T, um, and feel very self-righteous, but miss the big picture of what Jesus was really after. And he said, love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Right. Um, and that's, I think even Jesus was making a delineation in that moment, like, Hey, the 613 laws are still important, but at the end of the day, this is the heart of this. Like all these 613 laws are really here to support you in this endeavor to love God really, really well and to love people really, really well. And so I think we can, we can, you know, fulfill the letter of the law and be, you know, go to church all the time and feel very self-righteous without doing what God has actually called us to do. Yeah. Uh, you preached on, on this a little bit recently when you, you know, kind of differentiated between the, the cultural law. I can't remember how you, the terminology you used right off the top of my head. Uh, you talked about the moral law. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And the, and the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law, yeah. that's yeah, the yeah. word, yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, there's a, maybe we don't want to get into all the weeds of that, um, but there, part of it is understanding that the cultural context of, of scripture, the, the ceremonial law, yeah. you know, that had to deal with the sacrificial system and, um, you know, dietary, dietary restrictions. restrictions that were set aside in the new Testament, all of those kinds of things, um, versus what it really means to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so like people who might look back at the old Testament or look back at like the mosaic law and, and think, okay, well, I don't understand the purpose of sort of the weird, like the dietary laws, the tattoo laws, all mm-hmm. these things. Well, it, it, you, you come to an understanding of that by realizing that for the people that were surrounding Israel during that time, those things had spiritual significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm going to tattoo something to my body and I'm also a pagan. Uh, that probably has relation has that probably bears consequence on my relationship with my pagan idol, right? And so that's why that's there because they're, 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 we're pulling Israel up out of the idolatry and yeah. creating separation between them and the idols. And then the other thing that I see in the law is like it just shows you how unrighteous you are. Like mm-hmm. this, you can't mm-hmm. keep all of that. Like uh, just yeah. this, and, yeah. and and then you have in in uh the Sermon on the Mount, Christ making it harder to keep. Right. You know, so you have yeah. this this <laughs> and so I think that yeah, we can talk about the purpose of the law and I think that helps reveal the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Um now what happens when the spirit of the law demands violation of the letter of the law. And so when I think about this, I think about Christ breaking the Sabbath. Uh, is it the case that for us, first of all, is this so rare that we just probably shouldn't go there as like a person trying well, to? I would, the first thing I would push back on is Christ, your terminology of Christ broke the Sabbath. Right. Because yeah. Christ didn't break the Sabbath. Yeah. Right. Um, the understanding of Sabbath was flawed. Yeah. You know, um, so the the Pharisees would do this thing called hedging the law, right? So if the law is don't work on the Sabbath, then we'll create all of these regulations in in regard to that to make sure we don't work, right? And crazy things like, for example, one of the things you couldn't do on the Sabbath was spit. Right? Because if you spit in the dirt, it creates a furrow. It opens the dirt, which means you've plowed. Oh, yeah. Right? So don't spit on the Sabbath because then we will ensure that we haven't plowed. We haven't created a furrow in the dirt. You can only walk a certain number of steps on Mm -hmm. the Sabbath because if you walk more than a a certain amount of steps, then that's a day's journey. And if you go a day's journey, then you've worked. Right? You've... And so there's all this stuff, and this is why Jesus talks about you. You create these huge burdens and heap on people's backs, and like they were, they were actually making keeping the Sabbath work, mm-hmm. right? They were creating work by trying to avoid work. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and so there wasn't any rest to be found. 
And so when Jesus says the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath, mm-hmm. what he was revealing was that you've got this backwards. Yeah. Like when they, when they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, one of the occasions, right? There were a couple of occasions where he healed people yeah. and they accused him of breaking the Sabbath on that. The other was when he and the disciples are walking through this field and the disciples mm-hmm. are picking the heads of the grain and eating them as they walk along. Right, I can't think of many things that would be more relaxing than walking through a meadow, grabbing a, a, a head of grain and like popping a few kernels in your mouth and chatting with your friends while you're yeah. walking along. Yeah. Right, well, there's not a lot that's more restful than that in my mind, at least. And because they were grabbing the stalks of grain as they walked along, they're harvesting. They're harvesting, yeah. and so they're working. You know, and so the problem there wasn't that Jesus was breaking the law. The problem there was that they had created an environment wherein the law was impossible to keep. So because of their ignorance of the spirit of the law, that led them to a, to invent a misunderstanding of the law, which they then imposed on everyone else, including Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's good, man. So, okay, so what are some modern analogs of that? Like, do we have any off the top of our heads, like th- things where people are like... I grew up with some, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they're very common in churches and not just legalistic, traditional mainline churches. I think even modern contemporary churches can have some, but yeah, let's talk through some of them. Well, you know, for me, like I grew up in a church where like, you better wear a suit on Sunday. Yeah. Right? And if you didn't, then you didn't really love Jesus, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, uh, so somebody comes into the church, it, they don't even know, right? They come mm-hmm. in ignorantly, <laughs> and uh, and they got on a jeans and a T-shirt, and then people look down their nose at them. And literally, I mean, I remember people that came in dressed like that being told, hey, when you come back. Yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that that's one that I grew up with. Yeah. So even in that, let's just dig in a little bit. Um, I do see a valuable spirit in the the idea of dress. And so and you, I understand you have to be so careful with this. But uh, I, sh- I showed up to church in gym shorts once um, on a Sunday. You did? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Wow. Um, and, and so the thing is, though, like... Pagan. But I actually... <laughs> And you could say like, okay, well, come as you are. Like I could just recourse to that. But when I had to take an honest inventory of myself, I thought, okay, yeah, I probably am getting a little irreverent with like, I'm just, I'm too casual Mm -hmm. about it. And so like there is a spirit of reverence that Mm -hmm. manifests itself as dress, but you've just completely lost it. If you're telling telling people who are looking for Jesus, like you better have a suit on or you're not going to find him. But there's still something in there, isn't there? Like there's still... Yeah, but it's one thing to impose a personal conviction on someone else. Um, It's one thing for me to say, you know what, man, part of me giving my very best to God is dressing my very best when I go to church. Like I want every part of me to give the best to God. Great. I respect that. But me imposing my uh, personal convictions on someone else. I mean, that's the the whole book of Romans, right? Like it's, it's all... Uh, the Jews were imposing their personal convictions on the Gentiles. You have to be circumcised. And if, you, if you're not circumcised, you're not a real Christian. You have to um, do all these religious things that apply to us as Jews but don't apply to Gentiles. So they were imposing their personal convictions on the, on the other people. It, was, it, was there anything wrong with them observing that? I mean, Paul said, hey, you're slaves to this, right? But was there anything wrong with that? No, that's fine. But there is something wrong with us imposing that on somebody else and going, like what Todd was saying, like, hey, we're glad you came this week, but if you ever come back, you better wear a suit next right. week. Um, hey, we love you as you are this time, but but we're, we'll love you more if you dress right or if you behave right or if you vote right or if you... Yeah, and this goes both ways, right? Absolutely. Like, if you look at, the, if you look at Romans when Paul is discussing the issue of meat sacrificed to idols, mm-hmm. the folks who are eating the meat... Mm-hmm. Right, they were being accused of, you know, you don't love Jesus, right? right. You're eating, it. and and then so so they're being accused of not being holy, and then they in turn were accusing the people who were on the opposite side of the issue of being weak, mm-hmm. right? Well, you're you just have a weak conscience. You just you know mm-hmm. you, and so it goes both ways. Absolutely, uh, and and we and we still do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We still do it. 
uh, and create a law into ourselves. Is part of the reason why we do it because we're failing to understand the importance of evaluating spiritual condition at the individual level, like both in ourselves and other people. Like we're just yes. trying to create a spirit in the culture and we're trying to create a yes. spirit of the thing. And well, Todd, you, I mean, Todd is his title is, um, I mean, you're the pastor of spiritual development, I think is what your title is. And that's one of the things that's really challenging is how do we measure, how do we quantify spiritual development? And so one of the things we do is we impose these man-made things to measure spiritual development, like dress or like attendance or, you know, and is dress important? Yeah. Is attendance important? Yeah. Can they help us understand people's behavior? Sure. But now we've made these things supreme. I mean, just like what you were talking about with the um, with the obeying the Sabbath. Well, how do you obey, honor the Sabbath? Yeah. So, well, it's hard to measure if we're really honoring the Sabbath. So here's how we're going to measure honoring the Sabbath, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend this week, actually. Uh, and he likes, he enjoys hunting. Uh, and here in Pennsylvania, it's again, it's, it's hunting on Sundays is not allowed except for like three Sundays during the hunting season. Right. Mm-hmm. And my friend had gone hunting on one of these particular Sundays. His uncle, uh, was giving him a really hard time. I can't believe you would hunt on a Sunday. That's yeah. the Lord's day. And my friend was like, my uncle literally goes to church twice a year. He goes mm-hmm. on Easter and Christmas, and he's giving me a hard time because I went hunting on a Sunday evening, you know. And and so, like, yeah, we still like we find these things that are yeah. our our particular, you know, peccadillos, right? This is my thing, and so everybody else has to be on my thing, or yeah, you know, hmm. you you don't love Jesus. Yeah, that's uh, all of that is really interesting. I think we've done a pretty good job. I always have the habit of talking about how good of a job we've done at the end of these podcasts. We'll edit that out. (laughs) We'll let you guys decide if we've done a good job or not. And if we have, rate us and review us. That's That's right. Give us five stars. Yeah, that's right. I would would ask for six stars, but I don't think that we can do that. How many stars are there? Four. Oh, five's aggressive then, huh? I I think it's only four on Apple. I don't... That's the only one that counts. Yeah. Yeah. We don't care about the others anyway. (laughs) Yeah. That's what the Chinese tell us to say. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you guys for listening in. Mel, Todd, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And uh, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.